Hello and welcome to Hawkeye Nation. This is Hawkcast, your Iowa football, basketball, and recruiting podcast brought to you by Go Iowa Awesome and Rivals.com. My name is Elliot Clough at Elliot Clough on Twitter, joined by our managing editor, Ross Binder, and of course, publisher Adam Jacoby after Iowa's 35-0 loss today in the Cheez-It Citrus Bowl. And boy, did they let us know that it was the Cheez-It Citrus Bowl, didn't they? Taking advantage of every opportunity to uh, advertise, in- including during the national anthem. I think Adam, you pointed that out to me. Yeah, that was weird. Like they're like everybody rise to pay honor to the United States of America and those who support it. And you know they're they're walking out the the military and and you know they're they're presenting the colors and simultaneously. They are driving out a giant Cheez-It box being towed along by one of those like gator carts. And and the the juxtaposition of it was just like, oh guys, like way to show some reverence for America. <laughs> you know. No and, but you know, there 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 was a, a non-edible giant anthropomorphic Cheez It hiding in there. So that was, I guess he had that, to get out there. That was gold. That he came out and had the sign that said non-edible mascot or whatever it was. That was perfect. Um, but uh, on to the, uh, well, <laughs> the biggest tragedy of the day was that each media member in the press box was giving a special edition Cheez-It box. And I can tell Adam's already heated about the story that I'm about to tell. Special edition Cheez-It box with a Tiger Hawk and a Tennessee logo on it. And they gave them all. I took a picture. It's on Twitter. It's on my Twitter if you want to check it out. And we left for the post-game presser, came back. All those special edition cheese boxes were gone. All of us and the presser that I talked to were like, yeah, I'm going to take this home. This is cool. Put it up. And, you know, it's a special edition thing and really excited. No, maybe not really excited about it, but it's cool. Like, Adam, you, you mentioned you were going to put it in the background for when we do podcasts and we're actually home. And uh, we came back and they were gone. And Adam was fuming. <laughs> steam coming out of his ears <laughs> it doesn't make any sense like i they could have told us that we were only renting those boxes <laughs> who rents cheeses like what and and it wasn't just that somebody had come and like gotten greedy with it or anything like that or i don't think so because like we looked at the other press box and nothing there too so they had they'd done a commemorative cheese it sweep well, no one was looking, I guess. And uh, hold, yeah, hold on, Adam. I'm going to check you guys see if these are on sale there. <laughs> they will be. They were everywhere, and we didn't get to keep ours. And I am salty. I never would have opened that thing. I've been like, maybe I'll have one a year before the season every year for the rest of my career for good luck. <laughs> that sounds Can't like do a that now. idea. I know. <laughs> Signing up for food poisoning before every season. <laughs> Now, in all seriousness, Iowa takes this huge loss to Tennessee in this Citrus Bowl, 35-0, to zero, making, well, me look silly. Went on Hawkeye headquarters with Blake Hornstein and said 23-6 to six is my prediction going into this game, and then uh, went on the pod and said well, maybe 20-10, to 10, something to that effect, and Iowa goes out and gets throttled. Shut out for the third time this season. That's the first time that's happened. Since 1972, that's 51 years since the last time that's happened. And that is, uh, 
anytime you talk about the Hawkeyes in the 70s, it's never good. In total this season, Iowa was outscored 92 to 0 against ranked opponents. They haven't scored a point since Marshall Meter's kick to beat Nebraska. So, as we always do with this pod, looking back at the most recent game, Adam, I'll start with you. Few big things we're going to hit about everything we possibly can here from this game, but but anything in particular stick out to you or that you wrote about in in your uh, post game article? Yeah, a lot of things stuck out to me, and the first and foremost is one ball control was a critical failure yet again, and that is a pattern uh, with this offense with Deacon Hill running it. Uh, some of the other uh, beat writers had been mentioning that uh, Hill had 19 turnovers on the season. Uh, I don't think that's accurate because I think what they were looking at was the total fumbles on uh, PFF, which does not have fumbles lost. And so he was being credited with 11 fumbles lost. And, and I believe it's only only six, which is only the second highest in all of college football this season. So like... <laughs> It's an inaccurate stat, but accurate doesn't make it a whole lot better. Nonetheless, ball control was a serious problem, but more importantly, five three and outs for this Iowa offense when they weren't turning the ball over. And you can take care, and I'm doing air quotes for those not watching on YouTube, you can take care of the ball all you'd like. If you just throw the ball at the ground, or, or throw it into row E or, or what have you. If all you do is throw incomplete passes, you'll never turn the ball over and you also never score a point. So Iowa needs to get a little bit past the fear of turnovers and mm. that ball control mania and say, no, we need to be afraid of giving the ball away either by turnovers or by punt, right? If you really want possession, what you have to do is move the sticks and to move the sticks. You have to be more aggressive. You have to give the defense some reason to pause, some reason to think we're not really sure what this offense is going to do next. And you just didn't see that from Iowa's offense this year. Oh, excuse me. Didn't see it from Iowa's offense this year. And some of it's on the quarterback less than the court, less than the coaches want us to believe it's on the quarterback. I would say. Uh, Ross, you had the benefit of a TV crew producing your viewing of the game. Uh, is that consistent with what the announcers were saying? Is that your, I guess, read of the game? Or, or what did you think? No, I, I think that's quite accurate. Um, the announcers were incredulous, I think, because uh, this was an ABC game. Obviously, Iowa has not been on the uh, ESPN ABC family of networks this season i don't think at all actually so this may have been their first exposure to iowa's offense and uh <laughs> they were unprepared for how harrowing it can be those of us in the in the content minds have seen this for many weeks now so i mean we did have a, a break for a month which may or may not have been a good thing but um yeah they, they were unprepared for what they were seeing and they were like what are they doing? Why, you know, why are they not changing quarterbacks? Everything we've wondered for a long time. Um, but I think my biggest takeaway was just watching this. Like, what did what did the uh, the coaches and the what did they do for the last month? Like, 
what we saw today was fundamentally the exact same nonsense that we've seen from Iowa on offense this entire season, you know, just the same struggles, the same, you know, just terrible play design, the same terrible, uh, you know, rhythm or lack thereof in the, in the entire offense, uh, the same issues in protection, the same issues in route running, um, you know, drops, uh, bad decision-making from the quarterback. I mean, I know we'll talk about that later, but um, the offensive line took a step backward today, I thought. Like, I just – it was just a, a comedy of errors in every facet of the offense this game, I thought. And it was striking to me because, in theory, you know, I always had a month to get healthier. They've had a month to – you know, they're not game planning all month, obviously. But, you know, more time than normal to work on things – and hopefully develop some, you know, effective plays or schemes. And I don't know what, like I said, I don't know what they were doing, but nothing they did today was effective, obviously. I mean, they had zero points. They made one trip into the red zone, I believe, which ended in a terrible interception. It it was awful, but it was also not really surprising to anyone who's been watching Iowa this season because we have seen this, again and again and again all season. Elliot cited the stat that they haven't scored a point against ranked opponents. I mean, you guys were in Penn State watching that game. You guys were at the Big Ten title game against Michigan. This game felt a lot like those games, you know, just it was a deja vu all over again. So that was my overriding takeaway today. Yeah, Ross, you mentioned the just wondering – on a basic level, what the game plan was. I tried to get a question in at the uh, post-game conference, and and what I was going to ask was, okay, turnovers aside, because I didn't want him to, um, you know, derail the answer here with obvious, you know, ball control issues, but turnovers aside, did he think that Iowa was executing the game plan that they should have been executing on offense? And, like, what was the game plan? Like, I, I wanted to hear what this plan was. Because it wasn't obvious what they were trying to do. And that's been consistent with for a while. And at the very least, after the Michigan game, when we got to talk to Deacon Hill, who was not made available for us after this game, neither were any other offensive players. But at the very least, Deacon was able to tell us that their game plan against Michigan was quick throws to not have pressure come on the QB because Michigan's got that great in front and just try to get the ball in their playmaker's hands in some sort of space. Okay, I can understand that as a game plan. Did Iowa execute it well against Michigan? Lord, no. But at the very least, like, it's an ethos, right? Like, <laughs> we we understand the thought process. We had nothing to try to understand for this one. It It was not clear what they were trying to accomplish. And... That's very frustrating for fans. And and every time that I posted a quote from that post-game conference, I mean, my, my mentions melted down because people are really tired of seeing this offense not know what it's doing in the games that matter the most. And that has become consistent. And look, turnovers are bad, but that many three and outs that often that is a reflection of the offense that's being run, and it's a reflection of the people coaching that offense. Full stop. Bingo. 
So <clears throat> Adam mentioned in his first little uh, little spiel, if you're on YouTube, make sure that you are subscribed, that you are hitting that bell so you're getting notified every time we post a podcast. That way you don't miss a podcast. So we want to make sure everybody does not miss an episode of Hotcast. So make sure you're doing that. Drop a like. Drop a comment. Tell us what you're thinking and how you feel after that game, after that blowout loss. Ross, you owe it to yourselves, people. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. This is a safe space. Feel free to leave a comment. Ross, I think I think you nailed it with something that we haven't really talked about and that wasn't really a conversation in the um, in the press box, which is what the hell did they do over the last month? What the hell were you doing? And you, it's not like you can go out and say, oh, we were preparing for Joe Milton. That's why. Are you kidding me? Like, no, we didn't hear that. Nobody said that. But there really is no, in my opinion, valid excuse for that performance. You said it. The offensive line took a step back. Deacon Hill was awful. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Deacon was awful. Seven of 18, two interceptions, a pick six, that fumble on the two-yard line, like, it's... And the worst, one of the worst interceptions I've ever seen, that one he threw in the end zone into double coverage. Like, I don't know, was he planning to put the ball through the Tennessee guy's head in order to get it to his receiver? Because that, that Iowa player was so well covered, it was ludicrous. Like, and and then that that situation to try that pass is offensively stupid because you should get three points there at the absolute minimum because it's an extra point for the field goal attempt there basically and to not to not get that because of a horrible decision like that is inexcusable. This may and how many times this may ahead. be this may be the worst game we've seen from Deacon Hill. And it was probably his last start at Iowa. I sure hope it was for Iowa's sake, for fans' sake. And for his that, sake. I mean, how, how do you come in cold against Michigan State and perform better than – I don't like guys healthy, guys not. Like, throw that out the window in this conversation. Deacon was awful. Awful. That, that, that throw into double coverage – not only was it a throw into double coverage, but it's to Nico Ragaini. That's the move. That's the play on third and five. And uh, Adam, I'm, if we're still talking about Deacon, I'll let you go because uh, let's 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 keep the conversation there because there's more to talk about on that drive specifically. But but I'll I'll defer to you here, Adam. Yeah, they threw at Nico eight times in that Citrus Bowl. Iowa was two for eight four yards, and that interception. The passer rating on those eight throws was 4.2. 100 is a bad quarterback rating in the modern college football world. 4.2 was a QB rating. That, look, it's not Nico's fault that some of those throws even got thrown in the first place. And at the end of the day, receivers run their routes, right? That's I, I've asked Nico about that. And he said, you know, we control what we can control. We, we try to get ourselves open. So if 
Deacon's throwing at an unopened receiver, you know, that's only so much on the receiver and, and it's really more on the QB and, and really the, the play calling. Cause really the, let's also ask why was Nico Ragaini being double covered to begin with? <laughs> it, that sounds like shade and I don't mean it in a, on a personal level, but we're talking about a guy who, I mean, yes, is a starting wide receiver, but has never been productive enough to merit that sort of coverage unless Unless the defense already knows that's where the ball is going. And that is not Deacon's fault. That's not Nico's fault. That is on the coaches, and that is on whoever's in charge of that playbook, which they're a little reluctant to tell us more about who's really in charge of that playbook. You can probably figure out why. That was a perfect encapsulation. And it's also, what, the third, fourth, fifth time that we've seen a bad play from Deacon right in that red zone, like within that five to 10 yard line range. Like that's common for him this season. That's Yeah. I was thinking that too, Adam, because, you know, I agree with you that Iowa has a kind of a paralyzing fear of turnovers, which I think you're absolutely right. They need to get beyond that uh, somehow if they can. But I was also thinking, like, with Deacon this year, it's not just that he's been a turnover machine. It's that he's turned the ball over in some of the worst possible areas on the field and in some of the worst ways. Like that that fumble on the two-yard line. Like, you have to hold on to the ball there. That has to be priorities number one, two, and three, is you can't turn the ball over there. And yet he gets strip-sacked. And how many times did he get strip sack this year. And I and you you correctly noted that, you know, he fumbled 11 times, only lost it six times because, you know, there were a few times either Deacon fell on the ball or one of his offensive linemen fell on the ball or the running back was able to recover it, you know, whatever the case may be. But he had 11 fumbles because his ball security was terrible. Like he was getting strip sacked all the time this year, practically. I mean, 11, 11 fumbles is basically one per game for him as a, you know, the regular quarterback for Iowa this season, which is just abysmal. I think there was one game after Deacon took over the job where he went the entire game without fumbling the ball. One game. Rutgers? Maybe two. I'll, I'll have to double check. But uh, it was, I'm almost positive it was Rutgers. Let me pull up. I mean, was I can't cite a stat like that and then, like, not have it perfectly right. the ready here. But it uh, was. The, the Rutgers game was Deacon's finest moment by this season by far, I would say. So, yeah. And yeah. to your point, Ross, did, did you find it, Adam? No, keep going. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's hiding somewhere else, so keep going. All right. So, to your point, Ross, when talking about Deacon and, and his ball security being so bad. Not a single time have we heard from Kirk Ferentz that that Deacon either didn't play well or like he went into halftime supposedly. I am assuming you saw the interview, Ross, where he didn't say he said it's not Deacon's fault or something like that. Yeah, he said something to that effect. He was trying to just kind of you know, he didn't want to, it was one of those things where he doesn't want to throw Deacon under the bus and it's like, you know, oh, there's a lot of blame to go around kind of thing. And like, 
Sure, that's true to an extent, but it's like Deacon made some really terrible plays at interception foremost among them in that half. And the inability to honestly reckon with that, I think, is has been a real problem this season. It's to actually answer the question. Uh, it was the start at Nebraska where he did not fumble the ball. Uh, he also didn't fumble against Michigan State, which technically wasn't a start. But that's it. That's it. Hmm. Two games with two fumbles. And he gives you your best chance to win. I tell you what. I tell Allegedly. you what. Now, we'll we'll flip to quarterback number two here in a moment. But the other thing that we definitely need to hit on is the the lack of recognition. I don't know if it's a lack of recognition, but it's a lack of taking an opportunity in front of you. You've got one-on-one coverage with Caleb Brown or another receiver virtually the entire game. Maybe a one deep safety. Cause they don't they Tennessee knows they don't have to worry about the deep ball because Deacon can't throw it. There's that route. I, I don't know what down it was. It was later in the game. I think it was third, but I, I believe what happened was Bostic was on the outside. Nico was in the slot and uh, Bostic goes deep. Nico, Nico runs a, um, a, a route to the, to the, uh, to the sideline and like a Deacon, corner. Yeah. Yeah. The corner route and th- throws it between them. Bostic has one-on-one coverage against a freshman and Deacon throws it between them. I don't know what the hell that was. Like, what? What's? Is it a miscommunication at this point in the season after a month of prep, when you're already getting your ass kicked? What? What's going on there? And like, truthfully, truthfully, to this point in the season, I have not really gone after Deacon Hill's play that much at all. Really, like, I I do think. For a good portion of the season, well, I felt like he was probably their best option because Marco Linez is a true freshman who started in August. And I I was I was hesitant to say, yeah, he's terrible. He's not, I mean, he he wasn't good. He was not good this year. Like flat out not good. He's had a couple good games, the Rutgers game in particular. Um, I, he had that pass to Addison Ostranga in the back of the end zone. I think that was against Illinois. That amazed me that he made that throw. I really thought this month of prep would be beneficial for him. Maybe take a step forward, maybe lock himself as that number two quarterback going into next season. Not even close, man. Not that was again, probably the worst performance we've seen from him all season. That's really unfortunate. And and like we've said it before, I I hate to, I don't mean to patronize because I know this was done with Spencer Petrus quite a bit is Deacon's a great dude. He's a great Mm -hmm. dude been a blast talking to him he's always super candid he's honest um and and even like personally if i i think i would be friends with him if we were you know different circumstances less you know different professional situation but like uh, he's a great guy and it's really unfortunate that this panned out the way it has because there's no if ands or buts about it he was terrible yeah i i've sort of been in that same boat because at the very least we understood that he was thrust into a situation that he was not Iowa was not preparing for him to be QB one this year. And it was 
a very unfortunate circumstance that he was put into that role. And I, I asked Kirk Ferentz whether he thought, and this was earlier in the season, but it, it was when Deacon was having a really rough game. I think it was after the Minnesota game. And I asked him, do you think Deacon is in position to succeed running this offense? Kirk's answer was, we'll see. And I was willing to give a little bit of patience because we know that this kid is improving week to week. We've, you know, we were told that certainly. And, and there started to be some green shoots in his statistical performance. That's out the window. This was, this did not look like Deacon Hill had however many practices, however many weeks to continue that improvement. It didn't look like an improvement. It looked like that Purdue game where he went six for 21. And like the decision-making was not better. And it's frankly a little bit mystifying because it doesn't track with the trajectory that, you know, he had been on for most of the season. So there's a lot to figure out there. I don't know how much you can put on the game planning. I don't know how much you can put on how we heard that they were practicing well. We heard that Deacon was practicing well, right? I, like how 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 do we how do we believe anything that comes out of their mouth when it comes especially when it comes to the offense? I mean, really, like we've been repeatedly told things that just objectively aren't true. Yeah, I mean, other otherwise, you know, Deacon Hill looks like Joe Montana in practice or something, but that doesn't obviously seem likely. Yeah, I mean. Would have thought the same thing about Spencer Petras last year as well. And and what I wrote about today um, and, and why I think a lot of people are upset with the situation at quarterback in addition to Deacon not playing well is the refusal, one, to go to Joe Labus earlier this year, who's now in the transfer portal, and two, to go to Marco Linez, who we – saw take reps at the two with the twos behind uh deacon rather than joe we saw that for the first time in the northwestern game we saw marco jump him and and brian alluded to it presser the other day and yet neither of these guys are given a shot given a chance with how terrible deacon's been and that's a massive frustration with this fan base wanted to see alex padilla I mean, this is something I, I alluded to. I'm going to just open up my article really quick to make sure I, I address these this this quarterback situation because if, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's on iowa.rivals.com, also on my my Twitter if, if you want to check it out. I mean, what, what I alluded to is the fact that Iowa has, over the last five years, brought in quarterbacks via recruiting at the high school level that have had some notable ability to not necessarily be dual threat, but have some mobility, right? Talking Carson May, talking Joe Labus, Deuce Hogan, Alex Padilla, Peyton Mansell. All come in, all have talked about their mobility. All of them have have either left or are in the transfer portal. All of them. Which is really, really unfortunate. You know who started instead of them? Spencer Petrus and Deacon Hill. And going into next season, Cade McNamara is not exactly mobile. Two torn ACLs now in his college football career. Deacon Hill cannot be QB2 next season. He can't. 
And when you're looking at a guy who comes in and is successful, like Marco Linez was today, which again, we need to talk about him before we, we get to the end of this pod. Definitely. And then 2024 signee James Reeser, who they believe can run a 10-4 in the 100, run, has already run a 10-6-7 as, as a quarterback when he's already hurt. And then Jimmy Sullivan, who's run a 4-5-8-40, who was at the game today, believe it or not. And he's from Fort Wayne, Indiana. I thought that was, that was cool that he made the trip, maybe on uh, winter break vacation with his family or something. But um, in... In that regard, in my opinion, Iowa's offensive philosophy needs to change in a lot of ways, right? Like we're not, that's not just my opinion. That's, that's everybody's opinion. And that's, we're getting towards objectivity there, but not only that, it's a refusal to adjust to the talent that's on the roster, right? Like, you don't make players adjust to your system. You adjust your system to the talent that you have in order to be more successful. That's what good coaches do. They, they tailor things. They, they, they uh, design things in order to set their players up for success. That is what not what has happened with Brian Ferentz in the slightest. Um, speaking of which, my girlfriend's down here with me in Florida. She saw her family today. And, uh, or sorry, her, uh, her cousins, younger cousins who are 13 and 12, along with their parents. And they learned the definition of nepotism today. <laughs> <laughs> so a good way to start 2024. Right. <laughs> with all of that said, it's, it's really unfortunate. I mean, like, particularly I, I vividly remember Deuce Hogan coming in and people being really excited about him. And now he's in the transfer portal after being a walk-on at Kentucky. Probably going to end up FCS. And, and that may have been, you know, we don't know the the thick of every single individual situation, right? Like, it's not like Alex Padilla was awesome last year. I don't think, he, I think he took two snaps at SMU this season. So do with that what you will. But James Reeser and Jimmy Sullivan and Marco Linez aren't Alex Padilla. They aren't Deuce Hogan. Something needs to fundamentally change. Whoever is this next OC better be taking notes and better be willing to say, Kirk, we got to we gotta do something different, clearly. There was, just watching the Tennessee game, there, there were so many plays that were no more complicated than the receiver running a hitch or a hook, or or something, but at the very least, pushes the defensive back off, comes back, has his hands up big, and is moving back toward the ball, makes a catch with plenty of space, and then he can make moves. We don't see Iowa receivers even practicing that technique. We don't see them come back to the ball with giant targets for their QB. It's always, you know, try to catch it in stride. So, you know, try to catch it at full speed, whether the QB's, you know, zinging it at you at 200 miles an hour from five yards away or, or what have you. But it's always like trying to move forward. And that is, again, so easy for the defense to deal with. You don't see those targets. You, you, 
I'm not sure anybody on this Iowa offense knows how to run a back shoulder fade. I, I, I don't know if they know how to do that. And again, that sounds like shade, and I'm not saying it to be mean. I don't know if it's in their – I don't know if they've got that club in their bag. How do you not in 2024? <laughs> so obviously something has to change on a very, very fundamental level just to get the passing offense running. It's great that this team won 10 games. Like, that is a tremendous accomplishment. You keep running a 20th century passing game, you're not going to win 10 games very often. And the wins and losses are going to be as ugly over the long term as those numbers would indicate. It, it will catch up to these guys. Adam, you said a 20th century offense. Today, on one of Deacon's rollouts, a naked, you know, he's running back off at play action. We were watching, and I saw this live, also confirmed it on the, the replay. Before Deacon can even really look up field, he's already, you know, there's a there's a defensive end or whoever it was almost about able to sack him before Nico and Caleb Brown broke on their routes. He was on the turf. Mm -hmm. And you looked over, I said it, I pointed it out. You turned to me and you said that was the same thing they did in 1999. It is. It's that same exact rollout and, and play or in boot play action. It is in, Iowa has used it effectively this season to an extent. Like it's, it's a play that Deacon knows how to run. The problem is when you give a team like Tennessee a month to figure out your offense, <laughs> they're going to know how to stop that because they've seen it on film over and over and over and over and over. And of course the, the end was waiting right there because he knew that's where Deacon would be. I, look, predictability might feel good to a coach who, who's just trying to do anything to like run a familiar play. Do, do. Familiarity is crack cocaine to a defense. They love familiarity. Oh, they give them a look that they've seen before and run the same play that they've seen out of that look. Do it. See what happens. Like that is, it's one one in football that you've got your basic plays and you've got your control plays off of those. And Iowa does not execute these strategic ways to run the offense with any competence. And it's the same stuff. Defensive coordinators know it's the same stuff. Like it must be so easy to game plan for Iowa's offense these days. It, it must be a 30-hour work week prepping for these guys. I'm sorry, but it, it must be easy. You just look 30. at your notes from last year and highlight or, like, change a few names. Bada bang. 30-hour work month. <laughs> to, now the rest is recruiting, to, right? To your point, Adam, about, you know, the unlikelihood of scoring or winning 10 games with, you know, an offense like this – there was a great graphic that ESPN flashed during the game uh, showing the, re- the 
top five worst scoring offenses in college football this year and their records. Iowa's 10 wins uh, and the other four teams, the other four teams combined did not have 10 wins. So like, that's what you expect with an offense like this is they, they won. I think the most any team, Michigan state actually was on there. And I think they won four games this year. Uh, most teams are winning one or two games on that list. Like that's what you expect when you're averaging around 15 or 16 points a game. Um, the fact that this team won 10 games this season is truly remarkable. It's a complete testament to the defense, the special teams, and this team's just ability to, you know, wring uh, bizarre wins out of, you know, the most ridiculous circumstances as Kirk Ferentz has, has been a master at doing. But when things falter, like we've seen today, and especially as we've seen in the last couple of years, when they play teams that have more talent than them and uh, more speed than them and, you know, and they can't rely on kind of that BS pull rabbits out of their hat stuff to try and win games, it looks ugly. It looks, they just don't even look like they belong on the same field, even when they're winning, you know, all these other games. Like, I, you know, I wrote after the Penn State game this year about how uncompetitive Iowa's been in those games against good teams over for the last couple of seasons. Nothing changed the rest of the season. Michigan blew them out despite an incredible, incredible performance by the defense in that game. I mean, oh, yeah. they, were, they were superhuman practically. Um, and Iowa still lost 26 nothing. And today, not a superhuman effort by the defense, but 35 nothing because the offense, again, was just completely helpless and ineffective. Um, uh, Elliot has something to say. Another stat for you. Adam, you showed it to me. This is per Matt Brown on Twitter. Power 5 teams shut out three-plus times in one season since 2000. Since 2000. It's Iowa, who went 10-4, and four, and Rutgers is on this list three times. Seven teams. You know what their record was? 2-10, 2-10, That is, like, it's almost like you have to try to not score. Really. Yeah. And, like, everything has to go wrong. And in all three of those games, everything went wrong everything you had the eric all fumble in that penn state game and then everything went awry in the michigan game you had the jazz patterson fumble you had the the uh the uh deacon hill fumble fumble awful call awful call and then you had the deacon hill pick into double coverage when they should have at least come away with three points so nothing went right in in any of those three games and and it shows and it's it's seriously amazing they won 10 games this year i mean and on that on that note somebody on our premium board said what's the most impressive win by iowa this year northwestern wisconsin probably one of those two um you you could make a case for iowa state i guess yeah not after the liberty bowl yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the place you're in. And now, while while we're on the offense, there's one thing that that we that we touched on before we started recording, and that was the use of running backs today. 
it was just weird. Weird, weird, weird from the jump. Leshawn Williams, who's been the one running with the ones. I don't even know how many I got the stats pulled up. I'll see how many carries he had today. It wasn't very many relative to how many he usually gets. We were looking at the I want to say like here. five, maybe. Yeah, he had six carries. Six. Caleb Johnson had seven carries. Terrell Washington had two carries. Kamari Moulton had four carries. Jazz Patterson had two carries. I, where's there's no consistency and was, at one point i'm gonna i'm gonna hit on this uh, ross like you said it um and i actually just heard about it um on uh last chance you i've been watching it uh one one of the running backs said running back position is all about rhythm there was no rhythm none yeah. zero there was there was one drive where iowa used four different running backs on the drive i think it was the one that ended in the the Deacon Hill interception, actually. Um, yeah, because it was all in the red zone. They were, they were just cycling guys in. Well, well, Washington had the great – he had, like, a great, like, 15-yard run from, like, the 20 to get them down to the about the five. And then immediately, I think, the next play, Moulton comes in and gets a carry, and it goes for nothing. He goes right into the, the line. And it's just like – I Washington just had a great run. Like, why doesn't he get another carry? And, and it was just kind of that way all day, it felt like, that – you know, running backs rely so much on timing and rhythm and, and feel. Um, and I don't see how any of them could get any sort of a feel for the game today. Uh, and I don't, obviously they didn't really, but I mean, especially when they're just getting rotated out, like after it's not even like every other series or something, it's, it was literally like every play for a little while. And I was like, I, I don't know, what are we doing here? Like Moulton and Washington haven't played since, the early in the season, like the Michigan Western State Michigan, game, maybe Western yeah. Michigan. Yeah, it, was, it was September. Well, they played against Penn State because Iowa was in a was in a bad way with running backs for that game. I think uh, okay. uh, Johnson was hurt, and but it's been they didn't play at all through October and November. I don't think, and so now they, you know, they kind of get dusted off, and it's like, wait, what? What's going on here? Like it was. It was baffling. Sorry, go ahead, first, Elliot. You're good. The first time we saw Jazz Patterson today, he was split out wide when they were five wide. <laughs> couldn't couldn't protect Deacon Hill all day. Didn't have a running back back there for protection. And who has done phenomenal at it, Jazz Patterson. We saw him against Iowa State take out two guys. Oh, let's split him out wide. I'm sure he's better as a receiver. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that comes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, the game plan and just and the play design, too. But, like, what are they doing? It's it's completely impossible to figure out, in my mind, at least. So my friends and I would have uh, 2K tournaments when I was in high school and early college. And we'd have these tournaments where we there was different trophies you could win. It was really dumb, but it was fun. And we had a randoms tournament where you'd hit the randoms button three times and whoever you got, that's the team you had to play with. That's what it feels like Brian Ferentz was doing <laughs> with the running back position and play calls today. There was just no, con- it was just like, Oh, they're in this, they're in this formation. They're going to run this play. It's exactly what you said, Adam, but it was the most random, just all over the place formations, uh, play calls, running backs in there. Jacob Bostic, who is a name we heard about in pre uh, in, in in this pre bowl prep, still hasn't had a catch at Iowa. But we're splitting out Jazz Patterson out wide and five wide. 
What the hell is that? Did did Seth Anderson play today? I I didn't see him on TV. I don't think I did either. Uh, yeah. Oh man. <laughs> I don't know how we just recognize that. Good point, Ross. He was in warmups. He was healthy. He's fine. Mm-hmm. He was good at the beginning of the season too. Yeah. But, <laughs> but let's, let's spread that... out. Let's spread out, Jazz Patterson. Yeah. Golly. The only receivers I saw get get run today were uh, Caleb Brown, uh, Nico, obviously, and then Bostic was. I mean, he was out there. He didn't didn't have any catches today, but he definitely was out on a lot of routes or some routes at least. It it really two plus two is not equaling four currently. <laughs> it's equaling like negative forty six. Like what? <laughs> I it just doesn't make sense. I mean, not a whole lot of other positive things to take away from today. Caleb Brown, two big drops. Um, that one first one was behind him. Still probably should should catch it. It would have been an awesome catch, but probably should still catch it. And then the other one, he was yep. wide open. Deacon actually De- Deacon had a good throw to him, just dropped it, just flat out dropped it. It wouldn't have been a first down, but flat out dropped it. He's going to benefit from an offseason getting wide receiver work. Um, but who's to say how much he improves with, you know, with with Kelton Copeland, if he's still at, at that wide receiver coaching position? We haven't exactly seen a whole lot of development with guys like that. I mean, there's a reason guys are hitting the portal. Deontay Vines. I mean, uh, uh, Keegan Johnson. Uh, also, uh, the other one, uh, 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 Arlen Bruce. Yeah. Oh, Bruce. yeah. W- wasn't a smart bet there, Arlen, but you know, <laughs> he's in the CFL and more power to him. Good luck. Go play, Arlen. But now, yeah, Elliot, I- to your point, like this is, it, it goes back to like not only the guys that have transferred, but you look at guys like Amir Smith Marset, Brandon Smith. Those were like end of the roster NFL guys, though they have been end of the roster NFL guys who really should have developed into top three round picks. Both of them should have Brandon Smith in particular. Uh, if, if I were him, I'd probably be a little bit bitter about um, how that Iowa career went because his skills were great. Measurables were great. And he made highlight real catches with a regularity that I think Iowa fans took a little bit for granted especially now with how this offense has progressed since then. But, you know, he was a, like, go up and get it. Like, did he have one or two of those, like, around the receiver catches? Like, that that type of highlight real player that Iowa never figured out how to target even 50 times a year, which would not have been difficult. How you have that level of talent and in both – Smith and um, Smith Marset were good finds by the recruiters. Like those were, that's like rolling sixes, getting those guys as three stars. And they just, they didn't turn into what they should have been. The the Iowa offense was never a like, all right, well, we know we're at least going to get a hundred yards from Amir or from Brandon. Like that, that never came to pass and 
you have to look at the position coaching at that point. And there's just no, there's no success to fall back on for the Iowa wide receivers. Like it's one thing to say, oh yeah, these guys are, are, you know, they're transferring away. They're not having a good time, but look at who's here instead. Like look at the success instead. No, like Charlie Jones was a what fourth string receiver at Iowa, like number four or five on the death chart goes to Purdue for one year falls out. And at some point, Oh, Oh, stat Adam, he had more catches than the entire wide receiving core for Iowa had last year. Yep. Led the country in catches. Yeah. Now, either Purdue gave him that Captain America super serum and and turned him into a twice as good receiver, or Iowa was wasting his talents and being that restrictor plate on itself. And you look at the guys that come in and then come out, you have to think it's a pattern at this point. And the coaching has to change. Whether a new offensive coordinator does it all by himself, if that's the case, great. If there's some more positional development that needs to happen, I'm not sure Kelton Copeland has earned the benefit of the doubt on that. Now, he's he's probably still got Kirk Ferentz's you know, trust because that's the sort of guy that Kirk is, but I'm not sure where the trust comes from at this point. I'm not sure what you can point at as what Coach Copeland has done that is exemplary. That is a, well, yeah, you you keep around a guy who can develop a guy like that. What is it? What is it? That needs to change somehow, some way. Yep. Speaking of things that need to change. Quarterback change about 45 seconds into the fourth quarter after uh, Deacon Hill threw a pick six, by the way, um, in that regard, I was talking to our, one of our Tennessee guys, Ryan Sylvia, who was on the podcast last week. And he said that the guy who had the pick six drops into coverage once or twice a game. <laughs> Deacon threw it right to him. So anyway, Deacon, uh, Deacon, Deacon did not see him. No, no, no. So, speaking of Marco Linez, comes in the game in the fourth quarter, crowd erupts because they're getting a a mobile quarterback, somebody that's not Deacon Hill. And what does he do? He leads the team in rushing after five carries. He had 51 rushing yards, led the team in rushing. Now, the dude can't, couldn't hit a broadside of a barn. Throwing, throwing the ball today. I think he finished two completions for four yards, something like that. Now, two for so seven. Two for seven, exactly. Um, and so I think we saw why the team has not, why, why Coach Ferentz hasn't gone to Marco, right? Like, that's fair. And there's a reason I said they're not going to go to Marco. Well, one, because of who Carrick Ferentz is and, and who Brian Ferentz is, but but two, because he's a freshman, he's just not ready yet. And we saw he wasn't right. ready yet. And right. he's a true freshman. He shouldn't be ready yet. Exactly. And he came in in August. It's not like he enrolled early, even. And so he just missed on some throws, and and that's to be expected from a freshman who is retaining his red shirt. 
only played in one game this season, and it was this game. And what does he do? He comes in and, like I said, leads the team in rushing and adds a dynamic that this offense hasn't had all season. All season. And it was yeah. fun. That was the most fun that we probably had all day, huh, Adam? I mean, like, like uh, I, I remember, it was. I think it was his first snap. I think it was first and in, in 10, and he pulls it down and runs for 16 yards, gets the first down. It's like, whoa, that was cool. Wow. And what did we hear from Kirk post game? Oh, we thought about that going into this one. We thought about it. And what I thought he meant was we thought about starting Marco. That's what I thought too, because I don't know what else you would be thinking about. Right. Luckily, Chad Lysico asked a, a follow-up question and um, clarified that they had just thought about going to him, period. But, um, you know, <laughs> Drew Stevens misses a couple field goals and they throw Marshall Meter out there to win the game against Nebraska. But Deacon Hill goes 6 of 21, completing 30% of his passes. Had the most uh, turnover-worthy plays in all of college football, I think, at one point in time. PFF, I think I know he rated dead last in PFF for quarterback play in the entire country, um, but won't go to Marco Linez, won't go to Joe Labus. I mean, I, it just illustrates the point that I that I made earlier and that I made it made in my article, which you can find again on Iowa.rivals.com. Um, some incredible stats stats that Ross found as well um, that you can check out his his recap on Iowa.rivals.com. Adam will have a article coming out here soon, but. Um, just brutal, man. It, it just it just makes you sit back and go, well, where the hell was this all year? <laughs> you know, and it's just more of the same conversation on a sort of a different topic, right? I mean, it's 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 stubbornness, it's it's ego, it's he's a freshman, so we can't play him. Oh, what does he do? He makes the offense look as best as it has. The entire day. Of course, they don't convert on that fourth down, but like, ah, he was fun. It was fun. Like, yeah. shout out to Marco. And I'm sure he's he's just as upset as everybody else is that they lost and, and et cetera. But he gets his first snaps as a college quarterback. And man, he better be QB2 going into next season, dude. He better be QB2. Yeah, I don't have anything yeah. to add to that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I thought just watching uh, Marco just really made the lack of playing time for him or Labus earlier in the season even more frustrating because it was just like you keep giving Deacon chance after chance after chance after chance, um, even though he keeps violating the one thing that Ferentz claims is, you know, sacrosanct when it comes to quarterbacks, which is not turning the ball over. And, you know, Deacon is... You know, he's had the the, mo the many actual turnovers. And then, like, you know, Elliot pointed out, he's had all the turnover-worthy plays that didn't turn into actual turnovers, but easily could have. And, you know, it's like, okay, why don't you give anybody else a chance? And then, you know, Marco gets a chance at the end of this game, and he, he gives it a spark. Like, yes, his passing is, you know, very raw. You know, it needs a lot of work, obviously, and then the – in that area, but his ability with his legs, like provides some, you know, something that the offense has lacked all year and, and just an escapability and the ability to, you know, make something happen when the play breaks down, which 
has been often, um, especially, you know, with the offensive line struggling, you know, someone that can, you know, get out and do something, you know, why didn't he get more opportunities? Why didn't he get, you know, maybe his passing could have been improved if he'd had more chances with the ones in practice or, or, you know, seen some other game experience, you know, who knows, but it's just frustrating that, you know, I, I don't think he, you know, I don't know the starting him today would have turned things around at completely, obviously, but, you know, it's just when we've seen so much bad quarterback play, it's like, you know, give us, give us something, you know, give the other guy a chance, really. Exactly. You, you mentioned PFF and uh, I, I, I can tell you guys that Deacon Hill doesn't lead the team or doesn't lead the nation in turnover worthy plays anymore. He's way up there though. And uh, <laughs> he is. Um, a, so a couple things on PFF. One, he is second to last among QBs with, uh, I, I cut it off at Cade McNamara's 89 dropbacks. I, I figure anyone who's played less than that has probably not had a high enough um uh, sample size, but uh, among the guys with as many dropbacks as Cade McNamara, Deacon Hill is second worst in yards per attempt at just four point six. Uh, there's some guy for East Carolina behind him, so so worst among Power Five. And then if you look at turnover worthy plays, uh, you know he is on on raw numbers seventeenth, uh, sixteenth, like, but in terms of the rate. In terms of like how many plays, like what percentage of your plays are turnover worthy. Number six in the nation and not the number six that you want to be. And so when you're not throwing the ball downfield with any regularity, you're, you're not even getting five yards per attempt. And you're also turning the ball over at a rate or, or asking to turn the ball over at a rate that's also one of the worst in the nation. I mean, look, Elliot, you you said it and I agree. Like, he's a good kid, and and he's good to talk to, and he was able to communicate, you know, how he had improved, and, and you know, we saw it. We had reason to believe it. But for everything that Kirk Ferentz says about how ball control is important, about how maintaining drives is important, about everything about it, how your offense is supposed to work. You can't get yards throwing the ball. You can't hold on to the ball throwing the ball. And he just kept getting a pass on it. Kept getting a pass. Marco Lenez was fun to watch. And look, even if he's throwing the ball at receiver's speed, well, so was Deacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Accurate. So it's, I mean, well, for once and I'm glad the season's over because I don't like that these QBs keep getting put in these positions now obviously there's no right there nothing that the coaches can do except lean on one of them apparently so I'm glad that they're not going to get leaned on I'm glad that they're going to have this offseason to grow to improve heal to learn to learn who this new offensive coordinator is and, and learn how to work with him. Like I'm glad that they get that as opposed to you know, going out between the sidelines and just not being put in a position to succeed. Cause I don't think they were this year. 
Kirk never wanted to say no, but they weren't in position to succeed. And I hope that at the very least changes in 2024. Well, fellas, uh, I think we, uh, I think we got it taken care of. Is that Ross? Is, you, you got something to say here? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously we've harped on how bad the, the offense was, and and deservedly so. But you know, we should also probably shout out uh, a few things on the defense and special teams. Uh, you know, Joe Evans four sacks today. That was pretty <laughs> great. Like, I mean, there were not not a lot of silver linings today, but Joe Evans in his final game at Iowa you know, having a four sack game. I didn't see that coming, but that was great to see. Uh, Tory Taylor, you know, as expected, sets the NCAA single season punting record and um, just demolishes the record, honestly. He's like 300 some yards. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately too. Um, you know, said 300 some yards beyond the previous record. So like that, that record is, is not going anywhere for a long, 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 long time. Um, and then Jay Higgins, um, I think 16 tackles today, tied the uh, single season Iowa record for tackles, which is um, I think he ended up with like was it 171 or or something? Yep, which is a, 171. Just a stupefying number of tackles, and you know both of like the the Higgins stat and the the Taylor stat, you know both of those are obviously connected to this offense because it was so bad and so ineffective. Higgins is on the field a ton because the offense is going three and out or turning the ball over. That gives him a lot of tackle opportunities, obviously. You know, Taylor gets a lot of punting opportunities because, again, three and out, three and out, three and out, three and out. Um, so that is what it is. But, you know, I think we should also give props to those guys for excelling, you know, when they had their opportunities. You know, Taylor was – or it's not Taylor. Higgins was a tackling machine. You know, he was wrapping guys up all season long, playing great. Um, very happy to have him back next year, obviously. Uh, and Taylor, I mean, you know, obviously we would have liked to not see him as much as we did this year, but uh, when he did get called on, he he was excellent. You know, he just booming kick after kick after kick. So uh, props to those guys. So I you know, didn't want to end our discussion on a completely down note, I guess. That is true. Touche. Now, uh, one note before we get out of here, we did have a former player sitting behind us as well during the game. We got some thoughts from him during the game. You can check those out. That's on our premium board. Stay tuned uh, on on that note as well. We uh, will have definitely plenty of content coming your way, off-season content as the year rolls on. But Transfer Portal is still definitely going to be a conversation going forward, as well as opt-outs, guys who decide, I guess not opt-outs, guys who decide to, to head to the NFL draft versus to return. Talking Cooper DeGene, Nick Jackson, Sebastian Castro, uh, who else is on that list that I missed? Eric All is, that doesn't look like he's coming back, but um, he's he's on that list. Any other folks that I missed? Oh, Quinn Schulte, uh, Jamari Harris, is that it? Yep. All right. I think uh, so, of the guys with the uh, decision you have to make yep but those right. are those are big big pieces for next year and depending on those scholarships we'll see who they go after if they even end up dipping into the transfer portal at all because it doesn't look like for now that they have a ton of uh scholarships available so a lot of uh news on the docket coming forward of course we've got recruiting in its full effect going uh going forward here for basketball and 
for football. And of course it is basketball season for the men and the women and wrestling for that matter. Uh, of course, some, some crazy stuff happening there over the weekend as well. So stay tuned to Iowa.rivals.com for all of that. Myself, Elliot Clough, recruiting analyst for the site, Ross Binder, managing editor, Adam Jacoby, our publisher. So we'll wrap it up here. Before you go, make sure that you subscribe here on YouTube. If you're watching watching or listening there, uh, hit that that notification button, drop a like, drop a comment. What did you think about this game? And uh, again, safe space. Feel free to vent. And uh, if you're a Tennessee fan watching, feel free to gloat. You've, I think you've earned it. Nico Iamaliava, a name that we haven't mentioned during this podcast. Pretty good. Three touchdowns uh, on the ground and threw one through the air. Uh, we appreciate you tuning into this episode of Hotcast, brought to you by Iowa.Rivals.com. Again, if you haven't subscribed, make sure you do that and do it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. Leave that rate and review. It does help us out a lot, and it does make us very happy, even in times like this. So we appreciate you doing all that for now. Again, my name is Elliot Clough, joined by Ross Binder and Adam Jacoby. We will see you next time.